to The Human Beat. I'm Roger Raga. We're talking today with Dan Sears, the conservation director for Columbia Riverkeeper, about some current issues on the river. Dan, welcome. It's great to be Glad here. to have you with us. We're all concerned about uh, what's going on in Columbia. There's a methanol plant proposal there that would be um, one of the largest in the world. And they just recently sent out uh, some information basically saying that that methanol plant would actually not just be carbon neutral, but if they built it, it would actually help with the worldwide uh, carbon worldwide. Uh, I don't think you agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) As you can imagine, uh, they're they're pressed on this as strained credulity, uh, the idea of building the largest fracked gas to methanol refinery in the world. Um, that that would lead to some type of carbon reduction. Um, it prompted some of our members to call us and ask whether they were reading something from The Onion when they saw these headlines popping up. Um, and so we thought it was important to try to let people know what's really going on in Kalama. And the short version is this. A company called Northwest Innovation Works, which is a subsidiary of the Chinese Academies of Sciences, is seeking to build a very large refinery that would turn basically fracked gas into methanol. Uh, They intend to use that methanol uh, for making plastic in China. That's one of the potential uses. Uh, The other potential use would be as fuel in cars. And the amount of energy involved is is enormous. It's 300 million cubic feet of gas a day, which is about one-third of what the entire state of Washington uses currently in a day. So the claim that this could be in any way good for the climate uh, is, it, it's not just hard to believe, it's just flat wrong. Um, and so when we started digging into this document a little, little bit more deeply, what we discovered is that they've cooked the numbers and they've gotten what they paid for, which is a very self-serving analysis that masks the tremendous negative impact that this will have on our climate, on our river, on public safety, Um, And so we are really urging people to come to the hearing on December 13th in Longview, Washington, and to speak up about this proposal because we think it has a tremendous negative impact on the Columbia River estuary. Mm -hmm. Well, for those, uh, for people who haven't uh, been aware of this or haven't been following it, we're starting out uh, with fracked gas, right? That would be brought in from where? They intend to source, at least initially, most of their gas from British Columbia, uh, where most gas is produced through fracking. So mm-hmm. a lot of this gas would come from northeast British Columbia, come all the way down in uh, the pipeline system that connects us with British Columbia, down the I-5 corridor, the Williams line, and then they intend to build a 3.1-mile spur to the methanol refinery in Kalama. Now, we happen to think that they are going to need more pipeline capacity than than what exists currently, and even that more than that 3.1 miles um, so we think that this project is actually uh, going to have an even larger impact than they've admitted so far, which will involve the build-out of pipelines to deliver that fracked gas to the methanol refinery. Um, this is probably familiar to many people who tracked the Bradwood LNG project closely, uh, the idea that the company wouldn't be forthright at the beginning about its pipeline plans. Um, that's what we're seeing here. We, we're convinced that to build and operate this project at capacity, at full capacity, they would need to uh, add more pipeline, add more pipelines essentially into this part of the region. And typically, the way that seems to be done now or be proposed now is is through um, eminent domain, right? 
That's right. Right now, there are um, several landowners facing eminent domain for that 3.1 mile pipeline spur, which we think is, like I said, just sort of the tip of the iceberg for this. Um, that the use of eminent domain usually involves the the establishment of some public need or necessity. Um, in this case, the fracked gas would be flowing to a refinery that is, um, according to them, entirely devoted to shipping methanol to China. Um, in fact, the backer of this project is a subsidiary of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which is a part of the Chinese government. It's a strange situation uh, to, in the midst of a trade dispute, be pondering a huge, huge uh, project that would ship fracked gas to China in the form of methanol. What what does the company claim the benefit is for the United States or for the state of Washington? It's surprising to see them claim that this would be a carbon benefit, that it would ameliorate any impacts of climate change. And, and their argument on that is flawed in, in two respects. First, they dramatically understate the amount of greenhouse gas pollution that will arise from this project. They do that by lowballing, essentially, emissions at every step of the process. Um, and most significantly, they really understate the amount of methane that comes out of the fracking um, and gas production process. Um, they give a an estimate of methane leakage from this process at 0.32%. That's essentially the number they're using to base their, their big conclusion on. And that number is laughably low. It's probably an order of magnitude low. And when you use more realistic numbers, what you find is that this project would produce millions of tons more carbon pollution than they estimate in their environmental impact statement. Now, is that leakage number based on the plant itself or on the entire system? Because there's leakage along every step of the way, isn't there? Exactly. And that's what they were tasked with assessing in this, uh, what is a supplemental environmental impact statement. Uh, this entire process is a result of a successful lawsuit, which proved that they had failed to consider the upstream emissions of this project. All of those steps along the way, as you, as you put it, where methane escapes or other pollution occurs. Um, and so in this case, they have used the supplemental environmental impact statement as an opportunity to draft an even more skewed analysis. Um, and they've gone above and, beyond, above and beyond in this case, um, trying to argue that somehow it would, um, it would not create the amount of pollution that it clearly would. Um, so what we find, the cold, hard facts of this are, are really simple. Producing this much methanol from fracked gas creates millions of tons of greenhouse gas pollution. So mistake number one on their part was to downplay the amount of pollution. Mistake number two was to try to compare that pollution to some purported benefit of displacing more polluting fuels elsewhere in the world. So there is a huge part of this analysis that's really just hand-waving and wishful thinking, where they try to say that they're going to displace methanol produced from coal. Uh, we think this is a red herring. Uh, the analysis was supposed to focus on how much pollution they were going to produce from making methanol, shipping it across the world, and sourcing it with fracked gas. What they decided to do instead was to, in a hard-to-believe way, they, they really focused on uh, this boogeyman of coal-made methanol as the entire comparison in the EIS. Um, and so when you hear these outlandish numbers about how this would uh, potentially address climate change, um, they're outlandish because they're compared 
comparing it to something that really is a red herring mm-hmm. um, and, and something that's not even the real competition. So methanol from coal is not something that's commonly done? It's not done in the scale that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, they're talking about displacing huge amounts of coal-based methanol. Um, the fact of the matter is most of the methanol that is that doesn't come from gas comes from naphtha, which is an oil product, mm-hmm. um, and that has significantly less greenhouse gas impacts than coal-based methanol. So they're not even making the correct comparison. Setting all that aside, you know, we try to focus on the really the core issues. This is a huge industrial facility in the Columbia River estuary that will use massive, massive amounts of fracked gas, turn that gas into methanol to make either plastic or fuel in China. No part of this, no part of that equation adds up to sustainability, a healthy river, a safe community for the people in Kalama, or a stable climate. Everything about this project is a raw deal. Uh, how, is, how is that financed? Who pays for that? You mentioned the Chinese government is behind it in a way. That's right. So Northwest Innovation Works is a subsidiary of the Chinese Academy of Sciences. So essentially they're an extension of the Chinese government. But who pays for it is sort of a different question. Um, Right now there's a tariff imposed on U.S. exports of methanol to China, uh, which really could fundamentally erode the, the market basis for this project. It's not something that was considered in the supplemental environmental impact statement, which we think is a kind of a fundamental error because they rely so heavily on this idea that they're going to be shipping methanol directly to China. I think the sort of jarring part of the whole thing is when we realize that the United States government might actually underwrite the whole thing. So Northwest Innovation Works, which is, again, a subsidiary of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, is asking the United States government for a $2 billion loan guarantee to ensure that um, if this project didn't make money, that that money would be guaranteed. So the taxpayers essentially would be on the hook for the $2 billion it could cost to uh, build and operate this facility. Uh, That makes absolutely no sense uh, to have, in the midst of a trade dispute with with the Chinese government, a $2 billion loan guarantee for a Chinese-owned facility, a Chinese government-owned facility. We think it's a raw deal for U.S. taxpayers um, it's a bad idea to send fracked gas in the form of methanol overseas. It's a bad idea to frack it out of the ground in the be- to start with. Mm-hmm. And the other people who are paying the price for this are the landowners along the property, you know, the private property route where the pipeline would go. You know, they're, subsidi- they're subsidizing this project directly uh, with a potential eminent domain on their property. So no matter where you're standing, whether it's along the pipeline route or somewhere around the United States as a U.S. taxpayer, um, you stand to lose from this project. An eminent domain, as I recall, was originally intended so that uh, the government, if need be, could could have use of private land for the greater good, for the national interest and so on, rather than for private companies' benefit. I don't think anyone would have imagined the use of eminent domain uh, solely for the benefit of a Chinese government backed entity seeking to export fracked gas overseas. Uh, that would be, that strains anyone's interpretation of what is a public benefit or necessity. So what happens from here? What happens next? There's a public comment period open right now through December 28th. Uh, and so people can find more information about that public comment um, 
either through our website or through Cowlitz County's website. Um, that's ColumbiaRiverKeeper.org. Mm-hmm. Um, more importantly, even, uh, we're really encouraging people to come to the public hearing on December 13th in Longview. The hearing begins at 6 p.m. Uh, we'll be outside rallying at 5 p.m. to get our message across. Um, and that's going to be held at the Cowlitz County Event Center. And just so I have the address and give it out, it's 1900 7th Avenue in Longview, Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, many people are familiar with this place. It's where a lot of coal hearings have been have been held in the past. Um, this is a really important time to come to speak your mind because the flaws in this EIS are very blatant and kind of easy to understand. You know, things like not counting all the methane emissions on the upstream end and pretending you're displacing coal on the downstream end. Mm-hmm. Those are things that the average person can convey to the decision maker and say they need to pull this flawed analysis back and redo it. And so we'll be there with a lot of our friends and partners. I know the people in Kalama and in Cowlitz County, uh, like people in Clatsop County, have been dealing with fossil fuel projects for a very long time. Uh, we're going on more than 15 years of LNG, coal, propane, you name it. Um, methanol is just the latest fossil fuel suitor to the Columbia River estuary. Um, but they're very aggressive, and they're pushing this message um, of greenwashing this project really hard. The other thing that should be noted about this project is that it is one of two twin proposals for methanol refineries. Um, the Kalama project is the first. The second is proposed at Port Westward in mm-hmm. Oregon. Um, it's a place that's also familiar to many people because at one time there was an LNG terminal proposed there. Uh, there were two different coal terminals proposed there. There is an oil by rail facility that's currently moving ethanol but could move back to oil. Um, so it's a place that has also seen its share of fossil fuel developments and proposals. Um, so if they get away with this, this self-serving flawed analysis, um, it sets a very bad precedent for Washington, certainly, but also for Oregon. Who are the decision makers on this? How ultimately will this issue be decided in Washington, and how ultimately will it be decided in Oregon? The initial agencies involved are the Port of Kalama and Cowlitz County. Uh, they produced the initial flawed final environmental impact statement that we challenged successfully in court. Um, they are the ones responsible for this document, which is arguably even more flawed. Um, the only thing worse than ignoring an impact is stating that it will be the opposite of what it actually is. Um, and so this this document is, is really their responsibility initially. More importantly, the state of Washington, Governor Inslee, and the Department of Ecology have to sign off on this. And what we've seen, even in our the few days we've had to review this document, is that it's fundamentally flawed. It is not a basis on which the state of Washington should sign off on the largest fracked gas to methanol refinery in the world. It's very, very important that Governor Inslee and the Department of Ecology recognize the flaws in this document and not accept it and tell these folks to go back to the drawing board. Uh, Better yet, it might be time for them to uh, do what happened in Tacoma and give up on this project. Um, I didn't mention the third of these refineries, which was in Tacoma, Washington, they proposed um, a refinery like this. And uh, the public outcry was so intense that they gave up on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They withdrew that proposal. So we know they can be beaten. 
Well, Columbia Riverkeeper has got uh, lots of things on its plate, and I know another thing that uh, that you have concerns about is what's happening at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. Can you fill us in a little bit on that? Sure. Um, yeah, it's interesting to, to think about the, the timescales that we deal with. Uh, we have something like 12 years to deal with climate change um, in a meaningful way, according to the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very short window to make a big impact and to start bending the arc of fossil fuel use down. Um, Hanford presents, in some ways, the opposite problem. Uh, The contamination there, some of it is short-lived and very intense. Some of it is very long-lived and intense. Um, It is, for your listeners, for those not familiar with Hanford, it was the place the United States government used to make plutonium initially for the Nagasaki bomb. it was used to make plutonium for most of our uh, weapons, most of our plutonium-based weapons for decades thereafter. It produced plutonium from the 40s through the mid-80s. They stopped production in 1988. During that time, they produced hundreds of billions of gallons of contaminated radioactive water. Uh, You can think of sucking up just massive volumes of water out of the Columbia River Putting that through a nuclear processing facility on a scale that really no one has ever seen, and then releasing much of that directly into the ground. The worst of that material was set aside in underground tanks um, as high-level waste. And one of the things that's been very alarming in the last year or two has been with the Trump administration uh, taking a very short-term view of how this waste should be managed. it's very difficult to find a place to put high-level waste where it will be safe and secure and away from people and the biosphere for uh, the periods of time during which it will be dangerous, which is hundreds of thousands of years. And their solution to that has been, rather than trying to manage high-level waste, is to rename it low-level waste um, for the purpose of leaving it at Hanford essentially forever. Um, That poses a grave risk to the Columbia River and it's, it's not millions of years from now. Um, it's not only millions of years from now. It's also decades from now. A lot of this contamination can move to groundwater and move to the Columbia River on much shorter timescales. So one of the things we've been doing is reaching out to people around the region and really encouraging them to weigh in with the, the Department of Energy. Um, there were over 2,000 people who sent letters urging the Department of Energy to withdraw a proposal to reclassify high-level waste in one of the tank farms at Hanford. It's just one of these places where if they're able to set this precedent of calling high-level waste low-level waste without a really thorough review, if they can just do this willy-nilly, they will do it, and they'll do it in many places to cut costs. Um, The bigger picture with Hanford is, in some ways, hopeful or compelling. Um, It's a free-flowing part of the Columbia River. It's between dams. Uh, The water there is clear, often cold. It moves through gravel um, along the shoreline. If you paddle down that part of Hanford, it's not only beautiful, um, eerily beautiful at times, you also see fish spawning. Mm -hmm. Um, It is the best mainstem spawning habitat for Chinook salmon in the entire Columbia River system. So the cleanup there is really too big to fail. Um, It's not just salmon habitat. It's also drinking water for downstream communities. 
and something we are learning more every day, it's tremendously important culturally and as a resource to um, the Columbia River tribes. And um, we have been very fortunate to work with some of the folks recently at Yakima Nation who have been really raising concerns about this proposal to reclassify waste. Sitting through hearings and hearing um, people from the tribe speak, it's been a huge learning experience for me because you know, I have very shallow roots by comparison in, in this part of the, the world. And they've articulated over and over the importance of cleaning up Hanford to a state where they are able to use that place in the way that they have for time immemorial. And they've been, you know, people have been kept off the Hanford Nuclear Reservation for decades now. And in part because of that reason, there's a tremendous potential there for restoration. I was really blown away by the fact that hundreds of tribal members submitted comments to the U.S. Department of Energy asking them to to not proceed with the reclassification of waste at Hanford. That's very inspiring uh, because it's an issue that's hard to get your head around. It's hard to get motivated on something that is so long-term and seemingly intractable. And yet here are people uh, with, the, with Yakima Nation and other tribes speaking up against this proposal and really one of the worst ideas of the Rick Perry Energy Department and the Trump administration. Um, one of the things we're trying to do is just try to ensure that they don't make big mistakes in the next couple of years. And calling high-level waste low-level waste is one of the bigger mistakes you can make. I'm just thinking back to how long ago it was that the storage systems for this waste were designed. We're talking 80 years ago. And uh, with much less understanding of the dangers of nuclear uh, waste materials and so on. And now we've had 80 years of weather and 80 years of rain and 80 years of percolation happening there. And that's sort of the really the danger, isn't it? The plumes from the waste are getting closer and closer to the river. And in some cases, they reach the river and they enter the river. Um, there, and it's not just radioactivity. There's toxic pollution like hexavalent chromium, which... It's very toxic to aquatic life, and that bubbles up into the river in places uh, much higher than is safe for aquatic life. Um, and then there's the radioactivity. And, and yes, to answer the question that people ask us all the time, there is radioactive waste from Hanford entering the Columbia River. There, that's an undis- indisputable fact um, and an unfortunate one. Lucky for us, the river is big, and it flows, and it dilutes it. Um, but along that shoreline, there are places where I would certainly not want to muck around, mm-hmm. um, where you would come in contact with um, contamination that is, is not safe for people. And that's why the cleanup is so important. Um, those plumes are reaching the river now. And what's disturbing is you can look at models that show um, additional pulses of radioactivity reaching the river hundreds or even thousands of years from now, um, both due to the fact that the contamination is long-lived, but also due to the, the problem of, as you're uh, explaining, this infrastructure being old. So even if you were to pour cement and on top of it and try to mix this material with cement, eventually it breaks down. Mm-hmm. And if it's this close to the Columbia River, it's going to move to the river. And that's why Congress uh, designated high-level waste um, as material that needed to be disposed of in a deep geologic repository. And that is, that's where it should go. 
Um, do we have one of those yet? I know there we was do not. a proposal in Nevada at one point, which I there think was. has gone by the wayside. That's right. So this needs to be disposed of in a place that doesn't yet exist. That's right. And uh, that is one of the most compelling reasons why we shouldn't make more of it. Mm-hmm. And you know, anyone who studies the Hanford problem long enough, I think, comes to the conclusion that at the very least, um, managing this waste should be considered at the front end of any nuclear process. And most people come to the conclusion that this is not, this is not a, a safe way of creating energy. Um, we can make electrons move in much easier ways than splitting the atom. Do the states of Washington and Oregon have any influence on what is done at Hanford, or is this entirely a federal decision? That's an interesting problem for the waste reclassification issue. Um, the Federal Department of Energy is has essentially granted itself the sole regulatory authority to determine what is high-level or low-level waste. That's very problematic. At the same time, they have an agreement with the state of Washington called the Tri-Party Agreement, which is supposed to map out the cleanup at Hanford and ensure that whatever cleanup occurs there meets the standards of the state of Washington and the expectation that the federal government will hold up its end of the deal to protect the Northwest uh, from the legacy of this nuclear weapons waste. The state of Oregon doesn't have a seat at that tri-party agreement table, Mm -hmm. but has always been a key expert reviewer of these issues. And uh, I think their voice weighs heavily also because of the federal delegation in Oregon having really key roles now in Congress. So in both cases, in Oregon and Washington, it's very important for our elected leadership to be aware of these problems, um, to feel the support from the region that we expect the federal government to invest in cleanup in a way that actually protects the environment. Um, and then I think very significantly, you know, we need to ensure that our federal government holds up its end of the bargain. Uh, we made an agreement a long time ago to proceed with Hanford cleanup in a way that protected the Columbia River. And I think embedded in that, and actually overarching over all of this, they signed a treaty uh, with the tribes there. And um, there is a, a great leader of Yakima Nation passed away recently. And he said uh, frequently, and it's something that's stuck in my mind, if we cleaned up Hanford to meet and to protect, according to the Treaty of 1855, to meet that standard, we would protect all the people, not just the people of Yakima Nation. He continued by saying, you know, we've held up our end of the bargain, and sometimes we're in the position of having to hold up yours too. And so that's why we're reaching out to people around the region. It's, it's just tremendously important for us to speak up against this shortcut approach uh, with Hanford cleanup. It's just too dangerous. So if someone is concerned about this and would like to have a voice, how, how do they express that voice? You can connect with us through our website, uh, ColumbiaRiverKeeper.org. We've got a Hanford page, and um, through that you can find a way to submit a comment. Um, occasionally, the federal government will come out and hold hearings, as they did uh, recently in Hood River, um, where they uh, got a lot of very constructive input from people who were pushing back on this proposal to reclassify waste. And we're hoping for more of that to happen um, in coming months. Uh, they have not, in my memory, come to Astoria, 
um, but they sometimes do come to Portland. Mm-hmm. Well, Dan, thank you very much. We've been talking with Dan Sears, the conservation director for Columbia Riverkeeper, which is um, sort of our watchdog on the river and uh, trying to keep it uh, safe and clean and uh, keep us all uh, actually healthier for for it. So, Dan, thanks very much, and thanks for sharing uh, your knowledge about this. Oh, absolutely, and I look forward to seeing everyone on December 13th in Longview at uh, 5 p.m. for the rally and 6 p.m. for the hearing. And you've been listening to The Human Beat. I'm Roger Raga. Thanks for listening. Thank you.